This episode of the Vermont Awana podcast is brought to you by HeddyVermont.com and the Hedy Vermont Anniversary Party, Thursday, April 20th, 420 at the Skinny Pancake location in the Burlington Waterfront. This is part of Vermont Cannabis Week. We are going to have a ton of giveaways. We've got stash boxes. We've got gear. We've got CBD products. We've even got a gram of terpenes, straight terpenes that we're going to give away. So come on down, check it out, celebrate with us as part of Vermont Cannabis Week. Thursday, 420, Skinny Pancake in Burlington, 7 p.m. to 11. Let's go. Put your grinder down and turn your radio up. This is the Vermont to Wanna Podcast. Lighting up the airwaves. And now, here's your host, rolling it up nice and tight, Eli Herring. Welcome back, everybody. This is your host, Eli Harrington, recording this on Wednesday, April 5th, after a terrible day in Montpelier. That really, really sucked. Uh, We're going to get into what was talked about yesterday in Montpelier, and more generally, kind of where things stand with legalization politics in Vermont right now. How we got here to this point, how things could still change in 2017, and a general look at sort of where things are. Recorded a full episode last Tuesday, but things have changed again since then, so I wanted to at least give folks an update since been spending a lot of time in the State House and talk a little bit about where things are really at and is the legalization bill dead yet? So right now, I would describe it as saying it is not dead, but it is in critical condition in terms of the 2018 session. Again, you have to remember in Vermont politics with the legislature, these are two-year terms, a biennium. So the 2017 bills that do not get passed in 2017 will start off in those committees in 2018. So as a reminder, this is the first year of a two-year session, which is definitely a factor in some of the politics. A lot of folks who are new representatives did not necessarily run on a platform of legalization. Some of them ran saying that they were neutral. Um, you know, some of them are leaning towards not supporting it. So without an election coming up this fall, they really do not have the same kind of pressure they had last year and um, as not the same kind of pressure that they are going to have next year in 2018 when they've got an election looming and will have some accountability. So again, we're going to talk a little bit about the recap path of the bill, uh, how we got to where we are, what's in the bill itself, and then talk a little bit about the politics and what could actually change. So let's hop in the time machine and go all the way back to fall 2015 when people were getting together and organizing and the bill that would become S-241 was being drafted and discussed. We take a look back in time, politically things were much different in 2016. The outgoing governor, Peter Shumlin, was a very strong supporter of reform. However, he, uh, he was pretty much out of political capital, and 
the bill that came to the House, uh, that came to the Senate first, and that was passed by the Senate, S-241, was a behemoth. It was an example of trying to do a lot of things at once in terms of setting up a tax and regulate system. However, one of the things it did not include was the home grow provision. In part for that reason, a lot of advocates who want cannabis reform did not want S-241, and it made it very easy for people who were opponents to say, well, we like the idea of legalization, but we're really not into the idea of commercialization, and we don't want a quote-unquote big marijuana industry to start up here in Vermont. So last year, S-241 went down pretty spectacularly. It passed the Senate. It got to the House pretty late in the session, did not have a lot of time to be to be considered, uh, only went through one one committee, I think it was stuck in one committee for about six weeks. The House leadership, including the party leadership, as well as the former Speaker of the House, Shep Smith, uh, were not excited about really moving it around. And generally speaking, the House, Senate, and Governor don't always want to play nice together and sometimes, in fact, um, you know, can be pretty petty in how they work, work with or against each other. But again, the lessons learned from Bill 241 that failed last year were that legalization is the first step and that if we're going to get to a tax and regulate commercial market let's take these things one by one start with incremental progress get legalization as a criminal reform bill have some modest amount of home grow so that way all of the libertarian republicans who can say well just let people grow it at home all the uh um you know all the moderate democrats who are worried about quote unquote big marijuana and commercialization would sort of be um, assuaged, and we could start with something that was pretty conservative, pretty basic, and build. So that was really the strategy coming into to this session itself. This bill was written up originally by members of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Representative Maxine Grad, Chip Conquest, Tom Burdett. That's the committee that spent a lot of time last year considering legalization and, and reform issues. So it made sense for them to start this year. They put together what was a very modest bill and then spent about <clears throat> six weeks discussing it, taking testimony, um, deliberating, talking with other representatives, and ultimately ended up amending the bill to be even more conservative. So the bill itself that was passed out of their committee includes legalization, personal possession of up to one ounce and two mature plants. You can have, I think, four immature plants, but two mature plants and one ounce. Extremely conservative. If you look at Massachusetts, you can possess six plants and 10 ounces per month. So I think people thought that by compromising even more, pairing this legalization bill down, it would have an even better shot of success when it reached the entire house. So the committee took a while, and as it turns out, you know, there's been a lot of wrangling behind the scenes looking at counting votes and knowing how many votes are out there and who's actually supporting this because representatives do not want to bring bills to the floor and have them lose on close votes. They would rather do the negotiating beforehand, in committee, in the hallways, count the votes, and stall something until they know they've got the votes to be successful. That's really what's happening right now. But again, let's rewind a little bit. This committee passed the bill out after the deadline. There's a crossover deadline when bills that start in the House are supposed to move towards the Senate, and bills that start in the Senate are supposed to move towards the House. 
This bill did not make it out before that deadline. However, the Senate said they would suspend their normal rules procedure and accept it if it was passed last week. So, fast forward to last week. We had a bill that moved out of committee 8 to 3, and last Tuesday I went down to Montpelier and talked with representatives, was doing some advocacy, and was expecting that bill to come to a floor vote. Uh, If not Tuesday itself, then probably Wednesday. When a bill goes to the floor, there can be amendments that can be proposed and there can end up being a lot of discussion. So it's not always a simple, quick procedure, but that's where we kind of left off. And if you listen to the podcast that I recorded in the car last Tuesday that I decided not to air, uh, it was pretty salty and pretty bitter. And I think the, the tentative title was What the Fuck Just Happened in Montpelier. Now, what happened last week, much to my surprise, is that late in the afternoon, when the bill was ready to head to the floor, House leadership got together. They got together in caucuses. And basically, I think they had done some math and some counting and figured that they did not actually have the votes. Now, there are 150 members in the Vermont House of Representatives, so you're looking for 80 votes to give yourself a little bit of leeway here. But again, you only need 76 to pass. So this was expected to be very, very close right from the get-go. Last week there were a few people who were out with sickness and with vacation plans who were expected to be yes votes, so that was apparently a factor. But the House leadership got together and said, we are going to instead recommend this bill go back to the Human Services Committee. We want you all to support that. And basically sent the message that we do not feel confident we have enough votes to pass this. People say they're concerned about the kids and about prevention. So we're going to send it back to that committee and see what happens. Now, <clears throat> that signal um, sent a lot of different a lot of different messages, but the basic one that I think is undeniable is that they did not feel confident they had the votes. I can look at my numbers and my list of representatives and talk to their advocates who um, who have their own lists and we're counting votes. That's something that we are doing all day last week literally individuals. Are they yes? Are they no? Who's on the fence and might lean yes? Where do people come up in the alphabet, right? Because when you do a floor vote in the house, the alphabet is a factor. Um, Somebody who's a B could send a message and convince somebody whose name starts with a T that because that person whose name started with a B voted for it, maybe it's okay for this other person who comes later in the alphabet. So we can debate whether or not there were actually enough votes, but the fact of the matter is they did not feel confident and they did not want to bring the bill to the floor and possibly lose. So we do have a little interview. I talked to Matt Simon literally right after that happened in the House of Representatives chamber about sort of, was the bill dead? What were the prospects of it? Uh, I think Matt and I are, are consistently optimists, at least in the uh, at least when we're talking to the press and the public. So, you know, this was a really rough point. But um, here's what Matt Simon had to say. This is Matt Simon, politi- New England political director for the Marijuana Policy Project, talking to me last week, right after Bill 170 was sent back to committee. This interview is brought to you by Hedy Vermont. Check out the Hedy Vermont anniversary party Thursday, 420 at the Skinny Pancake. The fun starts at 7 o'clock. We're going to be down at the Burlington Waterfront. We've got some killer prizes and giveaways Series Natural Remedy is going to be there, and we are happy to have them on board talking about CBD products. The Open Vape will be there, Mary's Medicinals and Nutritionals. Uh, we are going to have folks like the Ganja Guides there. We've got some killer, killer giveaways, 
and we're going to have awesome tunes from DJ Taka starting 8 o'clock. So next Thursday, 4.20, 4.20 at the Skinny Pancake. The fun starts at 7, and the music starts at 8. Hope to see you there. Now enjoy the interview. Um, so Matt, just heard the, the result. It is going to Health and Human Services. So Bill is technically not dead, but what does this mean politically, uh, and what might happen in the next few weeks during the session here? Well, what might happen is that the bill will pass out of the Human Services Committee and then pass on the floor uh, within the next couple of days. So it's, you know, it's not, the bill's certainly not dead. It's not technically dead and it's not untechnically dead. Uh, you know, there's a sense of urgency to get it out of the House as soon as possible. But at the same time, this is a committee that does have a lot of favorable members and they did want to talk about the prevention and education pieces that the Judiciary Committee heard a ton of testimony about prevention and education. They heard that Vermont is doing a much better job than it was a year ago, that there are more programs, that they're deployed in more places. So that may be good testimony for the Human Services Committee to hear tomorrow. And we'll, I mean, we'll see when they're able to take it up and how quickly this is able to move. Right. But, um, and as a guy who, you know, been, been counting votes, didn't pass originally because they didn't think they had it, and then they thought they did have the votes, and now, you know, today we know that there are a few people who are expected to vote yes who are not actually present. Um, so it seems that it is a very, very tight by any calculation, and that, you know, do you think it's more about the number of supporters who are supporting it or the number of supporters who are actually present in the building today? I do believe that was a factor. I think we do have a majority of, of the House uh, in support of this, not... Not a huge majority, certainly. It will be it will be a close vote if, if in fact they they do get around to, to taking it on the House floor. Um, so I'm, I expect that was a factor. All right. So you heard Matt Simon there, and uh, again, that was right after the vote had happened, and there was a fair amount of uncertainty as to what would happen next. As he said, the bill was not dead, and is still not dead. Spoiler alert. Uh, today. What a lot of people took that and what we sort of put the word out was that that was a call to action, that this bill was still in play and that if political pressure was applied and people were out there talking to their representatives, making compelling cases that the votes are in fact there and that people do really support this, that this bill could potentially pass out of the human, leave the Human Services Committee and get back to the floor. Matt mentioned uh, this week, meaning last week, obviously that did not happen. However, there was a lot of political activity, and I think if you look at Terry Hallenbach's blog, uh, Fair Game, in seven days, on Friday, March 31st, she had noted that, <clears throat> excuse me, she had noted that uh, the Speaker's office had received a ton of calls. So there are about a dozen representatives who people have been calling and trying to get to flip, trying to get to step up, trying to get to support. A lot of them, spoiler alert, Chittenden County Democrats. Uh, Marsha Gardner in Richmond, Jessica Brumstead in Shelburne, the entire Colchester delegation, uh, Representative Pugh herself in South Burlington, who think, people think is, you know, sort of open to the idea, but maybe not the champion of this. Uh, Brian Keefe down in Manchester is another person. So there is a full list of representatives who are sort of targeted as being soft on this and being possibly, you know, um, able to be convinced and who could have crucial votes. But that's what's been happening in the last week, is that this bill has been sent back to Human Services Committee, and basically people have been trying to whip up the support constituents to call their representatives and to really call the Speaker's office. Um, you know, again, 
at the same time supporters are working, opponents are also working. And you may ask, who are the major opponents of this legalization bill? It's very simple. Law enforcement, okay, they've opposed every single cannabis reform that's come to the floor in Vermont. They have paid lobbyists. Yes, that's right. The police have paid lobbyists. They don't have enough authority. So finally, they get a, some control over society here. Um, they don't want to see any more, any more of these marijuanas. They don't want to make their job harder. They want to be able to use marijuana as a reason to search cars, to um, do any number of things. It just Their life is easier when pot stays illegal. It's really, I think, as simple as that and not, not so insidious. Um, and if you talk to you know the rank and file troopers and police officers, they're not. And you talk to ones who are retired. You know, the individuals themselves don't care as much. It's it's the unions, which are very strong, um, and it's the leadership, especially with a new head, a new head of law enforcement in Vermont under the Republican administration, who are not very favorable on this issue. Law enforcement's a major opponent. The healthcare lobby, um, all these folks doing prevention work, all these folks who are in the treatment facilities, in the rehab facilities, Guess what? If marijuana is not illegal and people start considering it in context of 2017 instead of 1937 or 1977, then guess what? There are going to be a lot fewer people referred to treatment programs, um, and that is going to have an impact on the amount of grants people can get. So, you know, as far as the healthcare lobby, we'll play some, we'll play some audio from yesterday's absolutely abysmal hearing. And you can get kind of a sample of what these people are saying. It is laughably uh, inaccurate and sometimes intentionally inaccurate. You know, when someone tells you usage rates have gone up and you go to Google and see that they clearly have not, there's only one conclusion to draw, and that is people are misrepresenting facts on purpose. And when you have, you know, doctors and teachers and these people using these scare tactics and really questionable facts and misrepresenting them, it's pretty damn disheartening, but they are really, really dug in. And right now, I'm going to treat you to a little sample of what I got for a solid two and a half hours yesterday in committee and let you hear from Dr. Jill Reinhardt, a pediatrician and chief opponent to legalization. Um, so putting together uh, a list of the things that really worry me, one is I worry about parents who are may or may not be legally smoking marijuana and put their children at risk because marijuana is affecting their attention to this you know, most important resource that we have, our kids. Um, and so we would need directed prevention efforts to talk about parenting and its effects of uh, marijuana on that really important role to children. I am concerned about safe storage of marijuana in the home. So for children, um, you know, especially toddlers, who get instincts um, and can ingest them. Um, and, um, and I don't know that we have a good solution to that yet. Um, I think uh, any good prevention plan has to in include um, efforts to, to warn pregnant women of the dangers of marijuana to the developing fetus and that marijuana is not a suitable or safe anti-nausea medicine. I know that Dr. Ratu has provided those peer-reviewed articles for you as well. Um, I think we have to understand that if there is urine or meconium in a newborn, that test meconium is the first bowel movement of an infant, and if that tests positive for marijuana, we are mandated to report that exposure to DCF. Uh, so another level of concern is with legalization, if parents don't understand the importance and 
increased uh, need for Department of Children and Family involvement um, in families. Um, uh, also, um, we would need to survey all um, pregnant mothers about their use. I think we do a pretty good job about that, but, but certainly in the world of legalizing it, it would be even more important. Um, and for prevention, the biggest thing is we currently, I feel, are very underserved right now in terms of the, the level of availability of substance abuse and substance use disorder counseling um, for anxiety um, and depression, let alone substance abuse, so um, needing more resources for adolescent programs there. Um, ultimately, in, a, in, the, in our Great Futures um, version for edition here, we talk a lot about building strengths and teens and youth and and you know why does one youth sort of choose to use a substance um, um, versus another? And so putting in efforts to help our teens to succeed overall, um, all teens, um, requires a sort of a community-wide uh, of uh, effort as well um, to understand that you know motivated um, teenagers to be able to be involved in their community so they feel that their voices are heard um, um, is a great counter to the uh, attractions of substance abuse, um, which tends to disengage our youth and not engage them. Um, so that was my, I think, you know, the realities of this to me, just this past week, I have a, a young person I followed for many years who has anxiety disorder, and she perceives immediate relief from marijuana when she's high, but when she is high, she has no motivation or reason to do anything different. Um, and when she's not high, her anxiety is reciprocated and gotten even higher because of the, the interactions with marijuana. Um, so I mean, that's the definition of substance use disorder, that it's been, uh, and teens don't necessarily understand that it can be addictive, um, and that when people, when kids do try to stop, especially if they stop cold turkey, um, that it can be very difficult for them to do so. So, so real specific focus targeting on what the results are and what the facts and science are about marijuana when uh, children and adolescents choose to, to use that to keep them from, from using. I'm going to pause there because I would love to answer questions. Okay. Um, so Dr. Reinhardt, thank you. Let me yeah. uh, see what questions there are for you in terms of your testimony or what you'd like further. Carl. Um, is there any evidence today at this point about uh, the problems with secondary smoke? people smoking marijuana around children? Absolutely. So we know that you can get high from secondary smoke. Um, and whether you're a child or a grown-up, that can happen. Um, I think that's a simple answer to that. Can it uh, lead to addiction, however, or not? I mean, you know, secondary smoke? I don't think that there, we don't have the evidence of that. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Reiner, this is Brian Keith, thank you for calling in. It sounds like you would support uh, uh, increased education efforts regardless of whether or not any new legislation was passed that would change the legal status of marijuana. You know, that's absolutely true. I think what we know is that there's an increase in, in, in teen use and that's linked to their perception of harm. It's linked to the availability of the product and the cost of the product of any of those. So certainly in our, our our nationwide issue of marijuana becoming more available. Um, we need to get the information about the, the lack of safety and the real risk of harm to teenagers um, 
to any state that's potentially planning to make marijuana recreational or more available. But, but if I may, just a quick follow-up. So you have two teenagers, I believe, it's I saw your testimony. Um, I have a teenager and a 20-year-old. We, Vermont and other states have <coughs> drug awareness programs and education programs. Are they not succeeding? Are they not funded? Are they not hitting the right mark? Um, you know, I think it's that we're competing against this, this large marijuana industry that would have us all believe that marijuana products are safe and effective um, because they can be used for medical conditions and that's free. There's, there must be no danger of using it recreationally. Um, I think that's the message that's coming out loud and clear to people. And so when I'm in a room with an individual patient or if I'm teaching a bunch of parents that like I did last week at Burlington High School about marijuana, those are the messages that are coming across. Um, I, I'm not the expert in sort of providing substance abuse counseling, but I certainly know what I hear in my practice that people take for granted. And currently we have a, 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 a grant that for within our American County Pediatrics, and we're calling it myth-busting, you know, about sort of understanding what's real and what's truly evidence-based science about marijuana, what's perceived. Um, and I think there's a, a real mismatch right now that we're trying to, to reconcile. Thank you. All right, that's enough of that. You guys get the idea. Um, what an instructive little sample. You know, this is someone who's a pediatrician, not a dumb person, has spent probably a decade plus in higher education, who is talking about the big marijuana industry that is pushing this bill in Vermont, this bill which would have no commercial or regulatory impacts. This person is talking about secondhand smoke, which we know definitely affects people. Actually, a quick Google search reveals that is not true at all. If you want to find a uh, teendrugabuse.gov website, which it busts the myth that secondhand smoke gets people high, certainly does not lead to addiction. So that's to give you a little bit of a taste of the testimony that was being heard yesterday, Tuesday, April 4th, by this Human Services Committee. And really, it went on like that for about two hours with uh, this pediatrician, officials from the Agency of Education, and then Margot Austin, a Burlington High School teacher um, <clears throat> whose sole mission it is on this earth is to terrify people about the dangers and evils of marijuana. I heard her rail against, uh, against butane hash oil, which was not part of the discussion at all um, for a solid five minutes yesterday. So... That's a little taste of what the opposition is saying. If that makes you frustrated, if that makes you infuriated that these are the people who are being invited to testify, you are certainly not alone. And I would encourage you to reach out to those representatives with some facts, not alternative facts, actual facts. Dave Silberman posted some testimony to the committee that dispels all of these and includes studies and data and actual information and not just we are hearing and this is what big marijuana is doing in the shadows. It's pretty disgusting to hear these people who serve such important roles in our society as counselors to high school students, as pediatricians, you know, as education officials who are just whipping up this intense fear of marijuana, which is totally based in a Nixon, you know, Anslinger even concept of the drug and not in reality and certainly not in common sense. So um, I applaud the representatives for keeping a straight face during all of this. I tried not to guffaw and, uh, and say anything too loudly when I was in the room 
but we had about two hours of that yesterday. The question is, what is next? Does that matter? And is legalization still alive in 2017? Now, this is where the politics kind of get interesting. I spoke to Representative Ann Pugh, who is a very esteemed and uh, influential lawmaker. She is also the chair of this committee, the Human Services Committee. And she's someone who um, is going to have a lot to say about whether this bill moves out of her committee and back onto the floor. I asked her, and you know what she told me? Amazing, amazing quote. She said, the bill will move when the weather changes. Think about that. The bill will move when the weather changes. The weather's changing right now outside atmospherically, but I think what she was really talking about is the political temperature and that when the votes are there and they feel confident that the votes are there, the bill will move. Now this belies a larger issue of who is counting the votes, who's got the correct count, who decides when the votes are quote unquote there and when there are enough votes, and who's going to, when that happens, push this thing forward. The Speaker's office has shown no will to really move on this. And I talked to some other representatives who said, oh, the Speaker was working so hard last week on this, trying to whip up the votes. Um, I'm not sure. I'm very skeptical of that. I think if the Speaker was working that hard, there would be 80 votes. People would be getting in line. I also think that politically, Democrats in the Vermont legislature should have some leverage. They basically just bent over and gave the governor whatever he wanted with his budget and this insane proposition um, of basically no new revenues with, with a slight uptick in revenues, but a lot of projects and programs which are gonna be taking a huge hit, no pun intended. So I think if the Democrats wanted to use their political capital, they certainly could. Um, so I'm skeptical, but Representative Pugh told me when the weather changes, this bill will move. And she likened it a beautiful analogy. Really, really enjoyed my talk with her, albeit brief. Talked about it being like a fur coat, you know, and there's a fur, when the weather changes, the fur coat comes into the, you know, comes out and is worn or goes back into the closet. And she said, and this is not my fur coat. So what I think is really missing and what is really crucial to make this happen this year in 2017 is that political pressure. You know, there are not the representatives who are out there championing, championing being the champions <laughs> and sort of the cheerleaders for this bill. You know, what House members are out there writing op-eds in support of this, holding press conferences, who are out there whipping up votes behind the scenes. I know that, um, you know, some of the sponsors committee, I think they passed it, you know, looking for some other help. Um, and so I don't think that those sponsors have been out there really whipping it, whipping it up. Um, the leadership is lukewarm at best. And I think at the start of a two year term with a lot of, you know, with some fresh faces that people are cautious to get into it. What the point that I made yesterday to uh, Representative Marsha Gardner from Richmond is I said, look, you know, those people, the prevention, the police that are coming out, they're not going to not vote for you because you legalize this. When you legalize this and nothing bad happens, just like nothing hugely, majorly bad has happened in Maine or Massachusetts recently, 
you know, nothing serious has happened with just legalization in these other states. The sky hasn't fallen. Usage rates have not increased among teens. Traffic fatalities have stayed pretty much flat with only a tiny statistical variation of a normal little up and down. So what I told this representative was, listen, when nothing bad happens, these people are not going to vote you out. However, if you continue to alienate all of the young people who vote for you, who overwhelmingly support this, and all the activists who feel strongly, and the criminal justice reform people, they will certainly not forget that. And they are going to be very, very disheartened that their representatives are not listening to them, and I think very motivated to find them opponents in primaries. So I kind of made that, made that case and, and made my, my sort of pitch to Representative Gardner directly, but that's a key missing ingredient. And that brings us to the conclusion of our show, which is me making a big announcement. I'm putting the word out. We're putting the word out through Hedy Vermont. Legislative Active, Legislative Action Day, Cannabis, Tuesday, April 11th. Basically, I'm sick of this shit, and I think if people want to make things happen, they need to put their feet and their asses where their mouths are, get off of Facebook, I don't care how much shit you talk on Facebook, come to the state house. I need some backup. We all need some backup, and these lawmakers need to see that there are real people behind this whose lives will be improved with legalization and who care about this. If your representatives aren't emailing you back, that's easy for them to avoid. You call and leave a voice message, that's easy for them to avoid. You go and show up at the state house, talk to them. You don't have to be an asshole about it. Go talk to them in a civil, courteous way using facts and information. They cannot avoid that. You need to get out there in person. So we are going to conclude this episode with me plugging Tuesday, April 11th. I'm going to organize this as best I can with the time that I have, try to get some representatives involved. We're going to be there all day, do a little lobbying boot camp, and then we're going to be in the state house talking to representatives, maybe have a little press conference, but we're going to get out there and, and show people that there is support. I don't care if two people join me, I'd rather have something more like 200, but fuck this shit. If people want to make things happen, you need to put your feet and your ass where your mouth is, get off of Facebook, and show up. So I hope that people out there are motivated. I can play you testimony of, uh, of pediatricians, and if you need to get fired up, I have another two hours of bullshit that the opponents are saying. Um, I will be happy to share that and inspire you to come out. But we're going to conclude this episode on a positive with some action and some potential. Say Tuesday, April 11th. That's this upcoming Tuesday. Join me, Hetty Vermont. Join the rest of us. Join our coalition. We've got some other advocates. I know of at least one veteran in the NEK who's going to join me. Um, shout out to Corey Kupiak and the New England Veterans Alliance. He joined me last week, which was awesome. But it's time to make some noise and make things happen. Right now, there is still a possibility for this to happen in 2017. But unless people get out there, make some noise, and show some support, nothing's going to happen. So we will see. The ball is in, uh, is in your court. The ball is in our court. But... That is what the fuck is going on in Montpelier when it comes to legalization. We will check back in later this week with an update on S-16, the medical bill, and what's going on with that. Plenty to talk about. But in the meantime, thank you for tuning in. Make sure to check out HeddyVermont.com, and as always, elevate the state.
Isso. 